You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Anxiety, anaphylaxis, cofactors and risk factors of a severe reaction, and why epinephrine is not prescribed for environmental allergens. Yes, my friends, we get into these topics and a few more in the last of our three-part anaphylaxis and epinephrine special in our Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Innovations podcast series in collaboration with the Allergy and Asthma Network. Dr. David Golden joins us once again as he did in our other two episodes. If you missed part one and part two, in part one we dive into what anaphylaxis is and why epinephrine is the only treatment for it. And our second episode, Dr. Golden walks us through all of the new methods being developed to administer epinephrine. To learn more about Dr. Golden, check out our show notes and of course check out the other two episodes we have with him if you haven't yet. Before we jump in, we want to thank Equestive for sponsoring this episode. There's this fine balance of rhetoric using fear and reality. And I think that I was told my next reaction is going to be worse. And I think it was because I was a teenager and they were just trying to instill in me that I need to use my FE when I have a reaction. And I think there's that fine balance of making it reality and making like what the worst outcome could be in putting it in my head. But then as patients, we can take it too far and we can take it into a paralyzing fear that we can't even look at our allergen because it's going to kill us like by just being in the same room. So there's that fine balance of what our doctors tell us to motivate us to actually do what is necessary to be done, but then to also not live in a complete state of fear. That's so important. I, I agree. And, and it, it's difficult. I think you're very perceptive and that's very true that as doctors, we're not sure sometimes how to balance that and how to get people to do the right thing. Uh, if they're not scared enough of the anaphylaxis, then maybe they won't do the right thing. But the fear of anaphylaxis is debilitating in many people, either in adults or, or in caregivers. And we have to deal with that too. So there's a lot of balance going on between reassurance on the one hand, no, the next one's not going to kill you. No, the epinephrine is not dangerous. There's a lot of, we need to, like I said, understand what their concerns and fears are so that we can work around that and have that discussion so that maybe they will carry it and will use it, but not be afraid to even look at a peanut or go into a room where there's a peanut. And yes, it is, there's reflex reactions, if you will. I tell a story and it's very true of a patient who confide in me that if she saw a peanut on TV, her throat would close. Is she crazy? No, she, this, is, this, is what's, this is the result of having been almost scared to death about what her reactions would be. And we had to go through a lot of reassurance training, if you will, to get that to calm down. Yeah, I mean, I think the mind-body connection plays such an important role in medicine, and we, I think, undermine that connection. So yes, when you're so fearful and then you think something's going to happen, your body can feel a certain way and you can start feeling that throat closure. You can start feeling that heart racing, the difficulty breathing, the shortness of breath, all of those symptoms start becoming very real. And there is you know, also that parallel between an anxiety attack 
versus is it asthma versus is it my throat closing? So I think, again, that mind-body connection is something that I point out a lot for patients that I know that fear is playing a big role in their symptoms. And maybe for that patient that you were talking about using their epinephrine device 20, 30 times in a year, that patient really needs that extra reassurance and extra reassurance training, as you, as you called it, to help them kind of calm their fears and to really understand and take that moment. Again, we talk about using epinephrine fast, but we also can take a moment to do some techniques to relax and see if it is an anxiety attack versus is it a true anaphylactic reaction. And I also just wanted to mention because I think we've talked about the mechanism of action with the, in the context also of environmental allergens. And, you know, environmental allergens do not cause anaphylaxis. It's really food allergens, venom that causes anaphylaxis. Because I know I do have patients sometimes that say, oh, I have a cat allergy. Can I have an epinephrine device? And no, we don't give epinephrine device for environmental allergies because thankfully we don't have anaphylactic reactions to those allergens. We have anaphylactic reactions to venom and we have anaphylactic reactions to food. And that's probably the way that it's ingested. Venom literally is injected into our body by the by the insect. And so the way that your body is getting those allergens is causing that anaphylactic reaction. And so environmental allergen, inhalant allergens do not cause that same type of reaction. So true. And, and yet they can cause severe allergic reactions. So we get into a, a, a um a definition thing, but but I have to agree that that I can't imagine a patient that I would want to prescribe an epinephrine treatment for because of environmental allergies. Almost epidemics of asthma. For I don't know if you've heard of thunderstorm asthma, but that that's a, a case of severe and potentially life-threatening asthma occurring because of bizarre kind of grass exposure. I I, I totally agree with what you said, but there was something as part of what was being said that made me want to come back to the reported anaphylactic reactions to COVID vaccine. Uh, this is where we saw, I don't want to put a percentage on it, I'd be guessing uh, no more than 50%, possibly 80% of the reported anaphylactic reactions to COVID vaccines were not anaphylaxis. They were what is now called immunization stress-related responses. Uh, I don't like that term either. And it's unpredictable. We see it in food challenges, for example, people and drug challenges, people who are given placebo can have a reaction. And it's not just, oh, I feel funny, I feel bad, I feel like my throat's closing. They can literally break out in hives, even though they're really not having anaphylaxis. It's a form of stress-related response. And anxiety uh, or panic attack would be another term for some of those, because that's how it feels. People who have had panic attacks, if they describe it, you could say, wow, that sounds like anaphylaxis. And it, it, it's, um, it's very tricky, and this is something we're now recognizing better. So, but there's no easy answer. People have tried to construct charts and tables of how do you tell the difference between true anaphylaxis and these other reactions. And you know what? We can make charts and tables, but when a patient's reacting in front of me, I'm probably going to give them epinephrine because I'm not sure I can tell the difference. So it's more to it than even meets the eye sometimes. Evaluation and management of anaphylaxis. And when I explain to people the Benadryl thing about the fact that they got better, better not because of the Benadryl, but because in, I, I try to phrase it in a way that your reaction at this time uh, got better by itself. And then I'll go on to say, you know, maybe that won't happen next time. You really have to 
treated appropriately. Yeah. And that every reaction is going to be different. And that the way that your body, like if you're sick with a cold, if you're already having asthma issues, if there's other things that are already going on in your body, that can also put you at higher risk of that anaphylactic reaction potentially being more life-threatening. And so that's why it's even more important for you. Like during your allergy season. Exactly. Like during your allergy season, if you're reacting. And then on all of those school forms, we do get asked, does this patient have asthma when they have a food allergen, for example? And the reason for that is that we do know that patients with asthma and food allergies, that if they're going to react, that we have to be more careful with those patients because they're at higher risk of having a more dangerous reaction. One of the things that we focus on, uh, that we've seen be a focus of research in the past few years and that we dwell on in the upcoming practice parameter are the risk factors and cofactors for severe anaphylaxis. And some of those risk factors are previous severe reactions. So what you've had before is very important in how we're going to uh, discuss your future management. Because if you've had a really severe reaction, you're at risk for a severe reaction. That sounds like common sense, but it's, a, it's an important point. Uh, as I was saying earlier, people who have had reactions, two or three or more, but it's never been really, really severe, odds are that it won't be in the future. But age, usually meaning older adults uh, because of underlying medical conditions, for example, and, and cofactors, exercise, stress, active, uh, viruses or colds, uh, active allergies, active asthma. These are a lot of cofactors that can turn a reaction from just mild to moderate anaphylaxis into severe life-threatening anaphylaxis. And just another plug for why it's important to keep your asthma under control. This is another reason because if you have uncontrolled asthma and then you have an anaphylactic reaction to a food you're allergic to, then that puts you at higher risk. Incidentally, it's neither here nor there, but just because we're talking about it, people don't know this, but and doctors don't know this, but epinephrine is a recommended treatment for severe asthma. It's in the National Asthma Education and prevention program, NAEPP, that in the schools, if, if asthma is severe and not responding to inhaled medications, then besides calling 911, it's like anaphylaxis. Epinephrine is a re- injection is a recommended treatment for that. Now, I go back to an era when that was routine. We gave epinephrine for asthma routinely. Yeah, that's something you don't hear very often, actually. I have to say, on my side as a patient, I've never heard that. And I have both asthma and I've had anaphylactic reactions in the past, and no one's ever told me that. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.